0: hello and welcome back to unknown serial killers this week we're going to be covering some of the youngest serial killers there is this is unknown serial killers kids edition we've covered diabolical kids but this one is definitely a step up as always views discretion is advised because we're talking about murder violence and possible use. let's jump right into it because we have a two for one special joshua earl Patrick phillips was born on March 17, 1984, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, to Steve and Melissa Phillips. Steve, a drug addict and alcoholic, was violent towards Phillips and Melissa, who both reported living in fear of him. Steve imposed strict rules on his son, got angry if he had other children in the house when he was not around, and particularly disliked young girls. Melissa says she never understood why her husband disliked girls yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. I just don't understand. Maybe he has some pedophile tendencies and he didn't want little girls in the house. Maybe. Um, I don't know. In November 1998, Phillips was 14 years old and living with his family in Jacksonville, Florida. Neighbors described Phillips as quiet and friendly. According to Maddie Clifton's mom, Phillips and her daughter were friends and she never had any reason to be afraid of him. Phillips had no arrest or history of violence prior to the murder. His school teacher said he was a popular student who did not stand out, describing him as fun and silly. According to Phillips, on November 3rd, 1998, he was home alone with Maddie Clifton, who lived across the road from the Phillips came to his house asking him to come outside and play baseball. Phillips agreed, even though he was not allowed to have friends over while his parents were not home. As the two were playing baseball, Phillips accidentally hit the ball into Clifton's eye, causing her to bleed, cry, and scream. Phillips panicked, knowing his father Steve would be home soon and fearing his reaction. Okay, so before all of this, he could have easily went to her house and told her mom or her parents or whoever was home at the time watching her that they were playing baseball and he accidentally hit her in the eye. All the other stuff that comes after this wasn't even necessary at all. Phillips dragged Clifton into his house saying that the clothing came off Clifton's lower body as he did so. He hit her with the baseball bat to stop her from screaming before putting her under the base of his bed. When Steve returned home, Phillips interacted with her for a period of time before returning to his home. When Phillips discovered that Clifton was still alive and moaning under his bed, he removed the mattress, cut her throat, stabbed her in the chest seven times with the knife from a Leatherman tool, killing her. See, everything else that came after hitting her in the eye could have easily been solved. None of this didn't really have to happen because now it's a whole much bigger situation than it already was. Clifton's disappearance was reported around 5 o'clock p.m. that day. Police and volunteers searched for Clifton for six days. Phyllis participated in the search. He later stated he spent the following week living in denial, saying, quote, I was putting myself in a fantasy where nothing had happened. That was my defense mechanism for everything when I was a kid. I never made the decision to ignore it. I just did, end quote. On November 10th, Melissa Phillips went into her son's room and noticed a wet spot on the floor. She searched the room and found Clifton's body, immediately leaving the house to report the incident to the police. Phillips was arrested later that day at his school and confessed to the murder within hours. The thing with this is he he killed this little girl and he participated in the search party. Like, I don't know why maybe this was a way to you know, get his mind off of actually killing her or make it not look suspicious on his part because they were friends and he was the last one to see her. But that just doesn't sit right with me at all. Prosecutors disputed some parts of Phillips' story. State Attorney Harry Shortstein suggested the murder had been sexually motivated, saying that Phillips had talked about sexual matters with both Maddie Clifton and her older sister the autopsy found no evidence of sexual assault though prosecutors agreed the lack of dirt and sand on clifton's body did not support phillips assertion that her clothes came off as he dragged her into the room prosecutors also noted that no blood was found in the backyard or on the baseball that phillips said had struck clifton and argued that this did not support his version of events Phillips was tried as an adult. The trial was moved from Duval County, Florida, to Polk County over concerns about the publicity in Jacksonville. Phillips' lawyer, Richard D. Nichols, did not call a single witness for the d- defense, a move that prosecutors later said was a surprising and risky strategy. Nichols intended to base much of the defense on a closing argument to the jury where he stated, Clifton's body was an act that began as an accident and deteriorated through panic that bordered on madness. According to Phillips, Nichols never attempted to question him over the event of the murder and only played chess with him when visiting him in prison prior to the trial. Melissa Phillips disagreed with Nichols' strategy, though Steve insisted on letting the lawyer do as he pleased. Nichols discouraged Phillips' parents from allowing him to testify. Accordingly, Phillips never spoke during his trial. The trial started on July 6, 1999, and lasted only two days, an unusually short time due to the defense calling no witnesses. Jurors took just over two hours to convict Phillips of first-degree murder. He was later sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He was not eligible for the death penalty as he was under 16. During the trial, the defense attempted to introduce scans from a neurologist showing bilateral lesions on the frontal lobe of Phillips' brain, which are associated with panic and impaired judgment. While the prosecution wanted to discuss evidence Phillips had looked at pornography on his computer, the judge, however, ruled both pieces of evidence inadmissible. Phillips completed his general education development in prison, although he was initially told he was too young to do it, and later took college classes by correspondence. Phillips worked as a paralegal in prison assisting other inmates with their appeal and also worked as a tutor for inmates. He also plays guitar in the band and participates in Christian religion services and yoga. During his 2017 appeal, the prosecution acknowledged that Phillips has been a model prisoner. As of 2008, Phillips declined to write a letter of apology to Clifton's family, saying they deserve an apology from him in person, as they would not be able to see his seniority in the letter. Clifton's mother subsequently stated she had no interest in talking to Phillips. As of 2021, Phillips is in prison by the Taylor Annex. So here's one thing that I want to say about this case. It really is confusing, and like to this day, they really don't know what happened obviously he didn't sexually assault her there was no signs of it but it said that there was no blood on the baseball on the baseball bat or whatever there was that he hit her with there was no signs of that so that really like you know makes things a little bit more hard i guess to figure out all right let's move on to part two David Broom was born on October 3, 1974, in Cascade Township, Minnesota. In the early evening of February 18, 1988, Olmsted County Sheriff's deputies discovered the bodies of Bernard 43, Paulette 42, Diane 13, and Richard 11 Broom, and the Broom family home. Missing from the home were the two oldest sons, David 16 and Joe 18. The police had been notified by the administration of David's school that students had reported hearing a rumor that David had informed other students that he had killed his family that morning. All four individuals had sustained numerous gashes in the head and upper body. Police subsequently found a blood stained act in the basement that forensic tested, indicated was used to kill all four victims. Immediately after the discovery, the police was concerned that David might be the victim of an abduction, but a friend of Davis informed the police that David himself told her that he killed his family and testified to the discussion in the subsequent trial. She told jurors at the trial, that Broom stopped her on the morning of February 18, 1988 as she was going to school and convinced her to skip school with him. He then detailed how he killed his parents, brother, and sister. He said he hit his dad with an axe he kept hitting his dad and his dad kept on getting up. The girl said Broom told her he'd gotten into an argument with his father at about 11.30pm the previous night and that he then stayed up until about 3am. She indicated that Broome detailed the crime, saying that he went to his parents' room, first killing his father. Then he hit his mother and went to his brother's room. Then he saw his sister standing over their mother in the upstairs hallway, at which point he attacked them both. Broome was captured on February 19, 1988, while using a payphone near the local post office. His case was initially referred to the juvenile court system because his age at the time of the crime was 16, but was eventually sent to adult judicial system based on the severity of the crime. As Broome's defense claim was insanity, mental illness was factor in the trial, and much media and legal focus was placed on Minnesota's use of the McKnight rules in detaining if Broome was legally insane at the time of the crime. On October 16, 1989, Broom was convicted of first-degree murder and was given three consecutive life sentences. He's currently housed at the Minnesota Correctional Facility in Stillwater, and his reasoning for killing his parents was parents disliked the music he was listening to and the chores they made him do. That was his reasoning for killing his parents because his parents didn't like the music that he listened to, and they wanted him to do chores now hypothetically speaking if that's the case all the kids out in the world would want to kill their parents because of the music they listen to and the chores that they didn't want to do there really wasn't no reason to kill his parents because of that I mean teenagers are teenagers um parents get upset with the stuff that they do or listen to and things like that so that really wasn't much of a motive I feel like he just wanted to do it but Thank you guys for tuning in and listening to another episode of Unknown Serial Killers. Um, we hope, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please join me again next week for more Unknown Serial Killers. As I always tell you guys, be nice to people you never know who they kill. See you guys next week. Bye.